Hello and welcome to Demystifying Genetics. My name's Matt Burgess and I'm a genetic counsellor in Melbourne. Um, today I'll be talking to Dr. Michael Field, who is a clinical geneticist in Sydney. Um, if you'd like to know more about genetic counselling, maybe check out my first podcast, which um, is where I sort of talk more about the profession. Um, but today we're going to talk all about um, Fragile X and um, different X-linked um, inherited conditions to do with um, learning problems. So today on Demystifying Genetics, I have Dr. Mike Field. Um, so welcome, Mike. Hi, Matthew. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> um, so you're um, a busy guy living in Sydney. Um, you work in different areas of genetics. And um, in the past, we worked in familial cancer together. Um, but what I'd really like to sort of talk about today or, or focus on in this podcast is... Um, the, the genetics behind um, learning uh, disability and sort of intellectual disability and um, that sort of area that you work in. Um, maybe to start with, can you sort of tell me what you're, you're sort of currently working on at the moment? So we work uh, with families where there is uh, a significant uh, intellectual problem in their children and usually we're working with families where there is... Um, there are multiple affected individuals in the family where we think that this may be much more likely to be genetic. Um, so at the moment, we've got a few things that we're working on or just about to publish. Um, we've just found a, a new gene that causes a type of um, uh, carbohydrate glycoprotein deficiency in uh -huh. one large X-linked family. And we're working on some other uh, copy number changes. Uh, and we're also working on some stuff that looks at how the, the non-coding DNA may affect some genes that cause learning problems as well. So it's pretty broad at the moment, Matthew. Wow. Let me just write that down, non-coding, because I think I have to come back to that, but maybe we need to talk about the more the sort of easier stuff before we get to that. Um, I, I guess when I think of um, sort of the main condition in this area, it, it's sort of Fragile X. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about, um, you know, what Fragile X is and um, sort of the, the main sort of presentations that you see in, in the clinic? Yeah, sure. So, so you're right, Matthew. Fragile X is probably one of the most common uh, conditions that we see in our service, and it's a learning disability that particularly affects boys but is often inherited through their mothers who may be uh, asymptomatic carriers. Um, and that's a pattern that works for things a little bit like uh, um, muscular dystrophy or haemophilia. Uh -huh. um, so fra fragile X typically with boys when they're affected um, causes a, a fairly significant learning problem that means they're likely to need to be educated in a in a smaller class when they get to school. Uh -huh. They often have a lot of trouble developing early language. And so it's not uncommon that their language is only starting to develop around the age of five when they start school. They, 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 can, be, they can be incredibly anxious in some situations uh, that they're not familiar with. Uh, and that anxiety may sort of boil over into behavioural problems and behavioural issues that are hard for the family to deal with, sort of meltdowns. Uh -huh. um, the, 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 as the boys get older, they may have some particular sort of facial features that you can see when you look at them. So they're, 
They may have a larger head size or hat size. They may um, may have a, a longer, thinner face. They may be a little bit um, low muscle toned. Um, but it would probably be usually would be the, the pattern of learning problems uh, and the inheritance pattern in the family that will give us a clue. Of course, now most people that have a significant early developmental problem or learning disability, boys or girls will often have a fragile X test, a DNA test. And mm. so sometimes we don't pick people because of how they look, but more often we're picking them because of the testing that paediatricians do. Yeah. So, yeah, I, sort of um, in my experience, when um, a, a little one is having problems with their developmental learning, um, the, you know, the mum takes them to see the GP and then the GP will refer them to a, a paediatrician and the paediatrician sort of does the, the initial kind of screening tests. And a lot of the time that sort of comes back normal and, you know, then they see a geneticist, but sort of more and more with um, sort of the, the more complicated um, chromosome tests that um, the doctors have got access to now, um, sort of more and more things are being picked up. Yeah, that's definitely right. Definitely. It's getting more complicated, not less. Yeah. And, and a lot of the um, research into, um, you know, the genetic nature of um, intellectual disability or um, sort of learning problems, um, it, they all sort of talk about X-linked inheritance and sort of being um, linked to the the X chromosome. Um, do we know why that is? Well, so boys, um, I don't know whether you've got a podcast about chromosomes. Hopefully that'll help your listeners. Um, but um, most of our chromosomes come as partner pairs, uh, except for the sex chromosomes, which are different between boys and girls. So girls have two sex, two X chromosomes, one they get from their mum and one they get from their father. But boys only get a single copy of the X chromosome uh, and their other chromosome that makes them male, the Y chromosome they get from their father. The Y chromosome doesn't have as many key genes on it as the X chromosome. So that means that boys often only have one chance of getting a, a healthy or a good copy of genes on the X chromosome, which makes them a little bit more genetically fragile, I guess, um, mm -hmm. to some health problems. So we said muscular dystrophy and haemophilia. Of course, the important thing is when you find a, an X chromosome problem, the important thing is you think about other, other females in the family that may also carry that but be unaware so they can understand what that might mean in a future pregnancy or 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 have access to making different choices when they come to have babies. Mm. Mm. Okay. And um, you work with a, a lovely bunch of genetic counsellors and, and other doctors, and one of my favourite genetic counsellors is Louise Christie. Um, and she she was my mentor when I was at uni studying genetic counselling. Um, and I was really proud of an article that she was first author on that, um, you know, some research that you were, I think you were final author on actually, um, about, um, newborn screening with Fragile X. Um, I'm just wondering if we can sort of, um, talk about that for a little bit, um, I think as a layperson or, you know, sort of superficially, you kind of think, oh, you know, newborn screening for a condition like Fragile X sounds fantastic, but um, it is a little bit sort of controversial. And 
Um, yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about that kind of w- what that study was and what you found yeah. out? So, um, so newborn screening is you. We usually use newborn screening to detect conditions where we know there's a very specific treatment or management that allows us to make a, a, a sort of a, an intervention early on in life that either sort of reduces or removes the risk of health problems going forward. Um, so Fragile X isn't something where recognition allows us to obviously totally mitigate those symptoms, but obviously being aware you have a child with Fragile X would mean that you can um, you, you can start early intervention earlier, that you're not you're not uncertain why your child isn't developing as quickly as other as other children, um, but that does come at a cost of finding out something very early in life that is you know, quite devastating news, I guess. The reason we thought it might be useful is that we we do know that about fifty percent of families will have had a second child by the time their first child is diagnosed with fragile X. Wow! And um, uh, so. The, the risk of, you know, a delayed diagnosis till you're, I mean, the average age is still about about four to five, mm-hmm. um, means that it's quite possible that you've, you know, you've, you've planned more children and unfortunately you've had another affected child in the meantime. So it was a little bit about, about the access to information for future prevention. A similar thing's been done in the UK for muscular dystrophy where they test the newborn babies for their level of a, a muscle enzyme. And the same principle was there. They they may start. Uh, they probably won't start any different therapy early on, um, but they the families are aware that they're at uh, increased risk. I guess coming back to your other question, what do we find in the study? Well, we found that um, of the two hundred of the thousand boys and the thousand girls that we tested in the newborn period, we found that um, about two out of uh, about two out of a thousand males were carriers, which means they didn't have full-blown fragile X, but they had a slightly unusual copy of the fragile X gene that one day could cause a problem in future generations of their family. Yeah, and we found that about about one about one in two hundred females were also a carrier for their fragile X premutation, which is a, a gene that may be unstable. But we definitely found no children with fragile X, um, and uh, most of the people that we found that may have been carriers of a, an unstable copy of that gene didn't look as though they were going to have babies uh, any time in their family in, in the next few generations with that condition. It still looked like it would be a long way off, if at all. So it was more a, a proof that you could use a, an existing technology to do screening. But I think now you've got a colleague down in Melbourne, a guy called David Godler, who's really um, taken the ball by the horns and he's using a slightly different technique that doesn't detect people that may one day in their family have a risk but only detects affected children. And he's doing a very large-scale trial now looking at um, the marker, a marker of, you know, affected fragile X only, um, but he's doing that in about 100,000 uh, blood spots from newborn babies that have come in around the state in the last, you know, four or five years. Uh-huh. So the technology is there to do this, um, h- how you deliver that and, and what the absolute benefits are is is sort of still to be determined. And I guess we're living now in an environment where people are looking more and more at 
early pregnancy screening or pre-pregnancy screening to find carriers. So that may become less important over time than we thought it would be, uh, you know, nearly seven or eight years ago when we did that research. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess maybe we've spoken about it in the wrong order and maybe I should have sort of explained a little bit more about what newborn screening is. But um, basically every um, baby that's born um, in Australia um, when they're still in hospital, a couple of days after birth, um, the midwife will um, take a little blood sample from the heel. It's usually um, called the heel prick test. Um, And that little drop of blood is put on a piece of filter paper and that filter paper goes to one of the, the children's hospitals around Australia and genetic testing is done. And I think that, you know, people that have had children understand or they, they're aware of this idea of newborn screening. But um, a lot of people in the community probably don't know that most people in Australia have already had genetic testing and they, they just kind of don't know about it. And I think, you know, most people get a, a negative result or, you know, they don't get any result, which means that it was negative. Um, but um, obviously there are some babies that are born where there is a positive result. And usually that means that um, it's for a condition where if you do something straight away, it can kind of change their outcome or their, their management. And that's sort of what you were saying with Fragile X, maybe um, their management isn't changed straight away, but a lot of the families sort of still said that this was good information to know. Yeah, I think that was the other thing from the study because we explained why we'd want to look uh, for um, the condition, even though we might not have a, a more sophisticated treatment. Uh, most families, more than 90% of people that were offered the test said that they thought it would be reasonable to know that early and they would rather know that early. And, uh, and you know, there was, when we sort of surveyed them about their attitudes, I think overall there was, it was positive, there was a positive uptake and positive response to the testing. So it was really sort of sampling how people in the community would feel about that approach. And it was also a little bit about how, um, how could the technology, how well we could get an existing technology then to work that was a possible way of doing newborn screening probably not sophisticated enough to do it across the whole of Australia at that stage. But the testing now that's coming in with David Godler certainly is. So, yeah, you're right. Um, so it had a few facets, that study. And and so when do you think is the right time in someone's life to, to have carrier screening? Uh, so, if, if you're, so if you're a girl in a family with fragile X and you're... Um, and you, you, we think you might be a carrier, then obviously we're saying you could be at risk of a future pregnancy affected by Fragile X, and you might want to know that when you start a family. Um, the, the, the literature, our approach in the genetics community probably doesn't match with the uh, feelings of the family. Uh-huh. Um, most... Um, uh, most geneticists try to leave carrier testing till you're at an age when you can understand and consent to that. Obviously, there are some, if we leave it till the age of 18, there are some girls that uh, feel, you know, that may already uh, have had a pregnancy, uh, an unexpected pregnancy, and we have seen that. And that obviously only adds to their distress going through a carrier test at that stage. Mm. We, we, we would be guided by the family. 
guided by the contact we have with the family, but it would have to happen at a time when uh, the uh, you know the young adult is capable of understanding what's going on and receiving the results mm. and it having some meaning. Um, the the families though a lot of research has been done about timing of fragile X testing in families and I think most some of the literature seems to support it being easier to grow up with the knowledge than to be that to be forced upon you at 18 or 19 when as an adolescent all you want to do is fit in and seem the same as everyone else whereas if you grow up with the knowledge um, it becomes sort of integrated into your uh, your going to say your dna but you're sort of more <laughs> aware of it and 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 uh your sort of concept of self self that that's the perfect words thank you matthew that's <laughs> great yeah so yeah there, there are some pros and cons of um there are some pros and cons of both approaches obviously the the individual the individual needs to be aware enough and it needs to come as a request from them uh and uh and it needs to be done delicately, but most people appreciate it being done at a time when they've got close support around from their family around them. And 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 a lot of the literature says that the families think they would rather have had it earlier rather than later. Yeah, it kind of seems like a, a, a like a, a bit of a, an easy question, and uh, but you know it's complicated. You know, is this public health or is it private? And so, if it is public health, well, then there's you know the public taxpaying dollars that are paying for this. So we should do it in the most efficient and you know the most cost effective way. But then, sort of, what is the most pragmatic way in a family? Like, is it better um, for children to grow up knowing this information? And if they do, you know, do they still remember it when they're going to have children? Mm-hmm. But and you know I've kind of spoken on some of the previous podcasts about um, carrier testing in the Jewish schools with the Jewish communities and how um, you know th- there's been a, a program testing um, you know um, 16 and 17 year olds um, and some people thought that that was good and now some people are sort of moving away from that because. Um, people forget their results and then they end up having to have new testing anyway and the technology is changing and, you know, should we wait until people are thinking of having pregnancy or, but then some people fall pregnant and, you know, they haven't sort of planned for it. And so I don't know if there is kind of a, a straightforward sort of answer there, is there? Yeah, I, I, I don't think so. I, I think the only thing that probably would be clear is if you had a, you had a sibling with fragile X and you were keen for testing. I think you're, you know, it, it, it's a lived experience. I think you're unlikely in that family to forget your fragile X result. And I guess the other thing to say, Matthew, is we wouldn't be just test. We would only be testing in the setting of a known family history, someone who's affected by fragile X. We certainly wouldn't be testing other females, um, you know, before before they were sort of adults in, in any other situation. Mm. And it would be definitely as older adolescents, not as uh, not not usually not as young children, okay. um, unless, unless we had some concern about their development that they may also be affected. So you know there are you know there are issues around obviously getting appropriate support and intervention, understanding best possible treatments if you're 
even if you're a female, sometimes they do. They are more more mildly affected, but they can be affected. So sometimes it's disclosed inadvertently when you're testing because of a symptom. Mm. So yeah, there's a million and one answers to that question. Unfortunately, Matthew, yeah. <laughs> none of them are none of them are perfect. And so I know that um, sort of you you work with lots of families, and and more and more of the families are getting um, diagnoses, but. Um, there are still families on your books where you think that there is definitely something genetic um, going on and something inherited that's sort of running through the family. Um, you know, do you still have a high, or, you know, a, a percentage of families that are like that? And are you hopeful that you will be able to get a, a genetic diagnosis for them? Yeah, so we just look back at our records. For the for the larger families, we, we started off like uh, – well, our colleague who started the service started off life first, uh, recognizing and describing the fragile X condition we've already talked about. And in the process, she collected a large number of, she collected samples from a large number of other families with a similar pattern of inheritance, a sex pattern of learning, in learning difficulty or inheritance. And, and when we look at those families that, you know, we would be pretty confident have a, 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 a sex pattern or an X-linked pattern of inheritance. Uh, we um, we see that about 70%, maybe 75% of the families are now resolved if they've had the most, um, you know, the most thorough testing that we can offer them today. Um, and that that's that's obviously if they're X-linked or sex-linked, that's that that um, number comes from. Mm-hmm. But there's about there's about 25 to 30% of families that don't seem to be easy to resolve. With the with the standard testing that's now coming into genetic clinics, um, so some of the reason for that is that there may be um, there may be very small missing parts of a gene that we can't um, we can't see with our current technology. We can see single single spelling changes in a gene, but we and we can see whole genes that are missed out, but we can't see when maybe a part of a gene is missing. So mm-hmm. there are t- now that can look for those things. There are also some families where we know that the the gene, which is a bit, I usually say is a bit like a book and broken up into chapters, we know that a lot of people when they have a genetic fault have a fault inside the, inside the chapter um, and that's what we read. We read the chapters of the book and make sure there's no spelling mistakes. But, but sometimes, you know, there can be something wrong with the outside all the chapters with the cover of the book or the way the book opens or that we don't see if we just read the chapters themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's the sort of thing I was saying about looking at the, non, the non-coding, the packaging DNA that goes around the genes that tells them how to work and when they need to be active and when they need to be inactive. So we certainly have now found a few families, possibly up to about 5% of our cohort that seem to have um, – changes in the DNA that influences the way a gene works, but it's outside the traditional areas that we'd normally look when we test a gene, mm. if, if that makes a little bit of sense for your listeners. <laughs> so, you know, like when I was at uni and learning about genetics, um, we were told that 
there was the genetic code that was, um, you know, the, the coding part of the gene. And then there were um, other parts of the gene that were non-coding or other parts of um, our, our genetic makeup or our genome where it was kind of just referred to as junk DNA. So mm-hmm. what, what you were saying just then, does that mean that it's not junk and it's not non-coding? Like it does actually code or it, it influences or, I, I mean... I- Oh, I think influences is a good is a good word. Sort of influences how the code of the gene is read. I think, yeah. So there are bits at the front of the gene that aren't really part of the code of the gene. Aren't really one of those chapters of the book, but they influence how the the code can be uh, how the code can be used to make a protein. Uh huh. How it can be transcribed. Um, we we know that there are some. There are some spots outside the genes that where what we call we just use the word transcribe, but we we have some spots outside the gene where certain factors will bind to the DNA called transcription factors, uh-huh. and they'll switch the gene on and off. And so we certainly we also know now that one of our families has a problem with a a site where a transcription factor is supposed to bind to set the gene working because it can't bind there. The genes more silent than it should be. It's not as active as it not should be. Not turned on, yeah. Not turned on. Uh, even Fragile X, really, even though you don't think about it, is a is a non-coding genetic problem. It's not in the code of the Fragile X gene, but it's in the it's a it's a region in the promoter that gets switched off. Yeah. So so we're um, just just as we've learned more and more about genes, though, with, to start with, we've always started with the, the, the chapters of the book without looking at the context of the whole gene. So there are now ways, maybe with some of our bigger families, where we've got a we have a good idea where the genetic change may be. Uh, we can use that information plus everything we know about how genes work to try and find some of those more mysterious, those harder-to-understand mutations. Mm, okay. And, you know, I'm sort of taking it back to, um, you know, the application and I'm, I'm thinking of the families. And, you know, some of these families were recruited, you know, literally decades ago. Um, what's it like sort of contacting the families and saying, you know, I, I know we haven't seen you since the 90s, but I think we know mm. what's going on in your family. Like, are they surprised? Are they grateful? Are they shocked? Uh, or uh, I would say it's a mixed bag. Most of the families that we're working with, though, we're, we're still in we're still in good contact with them, and we they know, we've sort of established that they're still interested in getting information. Uh huh. And, and and it's obviously uh, information not maybe for the family, the part of the family that first approached them, but for their daughters or granddaughters now. Yeah. Um. In general terms, the families are. Uh, uh, we, we've answered a, a lifelong question for some of the families, and so for some families, it is as important as the day they answered that question. For other families, they've moved on a little bit, um, but yeah, it, it's variable. But for some of the families, it's still very powerful information, especially. And we do know that a lot of the Younger family members are now starting to use what we've learned um, to find out whether they're a carrier, whether they need special testing in a pregnancy, mm-hmm. or to have different ways to start a pregnancy, either IVF or, or um, looking at uh, early testing 
uh, of the pregnancy to make sure they haven't got an affected child. So I, th I think overall, most of the families that we go back and contact know know that we're still working on their sample and know that and have asked us to continue working on that. So it's not a total shock, but I think they've sort of given up. They A lot of them have expected we will never tell them an answer. So it's a good shock, I think, a yeah. good surprise. <laughs> And um, one thing I, I don't think I have covered much on, on this sort of podcast series is IVF and pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. And I think that's what you were sort of just alluding to just then. But do you mean that when um, the genetic mistake or fault or change is found in a family that um, women and couples can actually use that um, to achieve um, pregnancies that are unaffected? Yeah, that, yeah, exactly, exactly right. So they use the code, the the error that we found in the genetic code. We can monitor, we can measure that either uh, in the developing embryo before it's put back through an IVF technique called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, or or they can find that information uh, early in a pregnancy uh, at the end of the first trimester of a pregnancy currently. But perhaps that you know that time is going to come back even further mm -hmm. to the first you know eight to ten weeks of a pregnancy in the future wow uh, yeah so yeah so we're um a lot of families because of the impact they've seen with maybe a mother raising multiple affected boys and still caring for them into the future and um they're, they're very keen to understand what their risk is many of them have a have elected in some cases, unless they can find an answer, not to have a pregnancy, not to take that risk. Um, so it's really, really important information. And those people that we find are not carriers, uh, whilst they've often held off starting their family, we can see, we, we have seen in the past anyway, there's a very quick uh, move, you know, change in their planning. So in the next, in the following few years, quite a lot of them are having pregnancies, you know, relieved to know that they're not at increased risk. Yeah, I, re I remember I went to a conference a, a couple of years ago when another one of your lovely colleagues, um, Jackie Boyle, genetic counsellor, presented um, that information. And I just thought it was fascinating that obviously there were these families out there where the young women who were at risk of being carriers were all really mindful or concerned about, I mean, even if they were saying that they weren't concerned, you could see that there was obviously something going on there because of the mm. number of or the lack of pregnancies. And as soon as the res um, the results came out that they weren't carriers or that um, you know testing could happen, that there were all of these pregnancies. And uh, yeah, I thought that was fascinating research. I really enjoyed learning mm. about that. Mm. Yeah, well, it, it shows that for, at least for some of our families, what we find is is not just for our scientific interest, but is also of vital importance to the families to make choices for the future. Um, they're sort of voting a little bit with their feet, if you like. Um, but, um, yeah, clearly it's, uh, you know, we, I guess in the longer term we always hope, and we have hoped with Fragile X that as we understand more and more about the condition, that we will get more specific or targeted treatments that just aren't treating the symptoms. So as we understand more about biology, like we are in the cancer space, understanding more about the biology of cancer, we're getting more and more sophisticated treatments. 
maybe we can expect similar things in the future for learning disabilities. So in the future, the research might lead on to much better treatment or management for families that are affected. But at the moment, one of the key outcomes is that people can either be reassured that they're not at risk and hopefully go on and have the family they've always wanted to have, um, or, or they, they, can, they can make that choice in a pregnancy. And, uh, and a lot of people that we're in contact with, which is why we're in contact with them, do choose different ways of, of starting their family. So they try and avoid having another affected male. Mm. So changing topics slightly, um, I, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit just before we finish up about bioinformatics. Um, I was kind of thinking um, about sort of the evolution of genetics. And, you know, when people have a genetic test, um, we take a biological sample and um, most of the time that's a blood sample, but it could be, um, you know, a saliva sample or a cheek swab or, um, but it's sort of like um, something biological. But um, in a lot of areas of our lives, things are becoming more digital and somewhere in that pathology process, um, that genetic information is taken from a biological sample and sort of is made into some sort of digital information. And that is an area of medicine that is kind of exploding that um, people don't often think about. Um, And I know that you've sort of had um, some interest and extra training and, you know, sort of involved in that area. And just wondering if you can tell me a little bit more about that. So I guess um, bio, bioinformatics itself is not always about sort of um, DNA testing, but it's about it's really about how you can take a large data sets and, and try to understand a little bit more about a biological problem. And usually it means the data set is so. When I Data set may be the wrong word. It may be a bit technical. But when, when you take a whole lot of information about a bi- from a group of people with the same biological problem, you're then trying to piece together what's what's common about them and, and therefore what may be driving their condition. But it's usually the, the information is usually so vast, the number of points that you're looking at. It's not really something you can search manually. You need a computer to somehow search through that information for you. Mm-hmm. So. So when it comes to uh, when it comes to genes that cause learning difficulty, now we we probably have over two thousand candidate genes that may be faulty in some kids with learning problems, and there's probably close to a thousand well characterised intellectual disability genes. That's it's almost a mammoth task. It would have seemed a mammoth task even five years ago to believe that we would be looking at all those genes uh, and then searching to make sure there's no typing mistakes in them. Um, but now with computerized tools, we, we can in a, we can do something that would be almost impossible to do if it was just uh, manually done by an individual only. We can look at the code of all those genes and try and sift out what is most unique about that sample compared to all the others. So hopefully... It, we we get to a smaller number of points that we have to look at to try and decide how they could influence someone's learning problem. Um, but exactly what you say, you start with a um, for, for for genetic testing now. You start with a, a a DNA, a chemical sample, and you do a chemical based test. 
that that gets turned into a into a digital readout or a digital imprint, and that imprint you can you can store and you can look at again and again, uh, and you can look at in lots of different ways. And so people are also devising new tools, computerized tools, to look at that data in a more and more sophisticated way. So we understand really more and more about what the data is trying to tell us. Sometimes, though, because we just aren't aware of things when we look at the data for the first time, uh, it's not clear why there's a problem. But if we go back to that data, the same data in another two or three years, with extra information or with different techniques, we, we can often uh, re-identify, we can often identify uh, a, a genetic problem that was that's evaded us for so many years. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Excellent. So just to finish up, where do you think genetics is going? I know you've sort of, in your career, you've seen a, a lot of changes and, um, you know, how things have sort of evolved over time. Do you have any sort of sense of what's to come? Uh, well, oh, um, <laughs> big question. Big question. Yeah, I'm, I, I would have thought that I think there will be more people using genetics in their medical practice, uh-huh. and that uh, we will we will really need, we will need to be experts at upskill other clinicians in different areas. I think we're going to be faced with a, an avalanche of genetic information, and I think that the the, the most challenging aspect will be to try and ensure that genetic information is not overinterpreted by people that are less familiar with the techniques or technologies or the complexity of that information. I think, I think we'll have to try and um, uh, protect people from uh, you know, overinterpretation of their information and doing too much screening in the future. But I, I, I guess I can see this gene becoming more and more part of mainstream care, from pregnancy care to care of people with cancer to yeah, all, all sorts of areas of medicine, even selection of you know, drugs, avoid, avoidance of um, adverse responses to drugs, mm-hmm. all sorts of things may be part of people's genetic health care in the future. won't necessarily all be driven by us, but I think we'll have to try and help people not make too many mistakes along the way. That's probably what what our job will be. I, I agree. But it sounds like we need more genetic counsellors. Yeah, absolutely, Matthew. <laughs> Lucky we've got you. No, I agree. <laughs> I think we will need a lot more genetic counsellors and, uh, and, and we're all going to have to learn new skills, uh, things that we haven't necessarily seen as our remit. We will have to become more and more sophisticated genetic counsellors, clinicians, Yep. about interpreting uh, genetic data and understanding its complexity and and trying to put safeguards in that means that we don't overinterpret something that ultimately turns out to be quite common. Beautiful. Well, let's finish there. Thank you very much, Mike, for um, talking with us today about the genetics of learning disability. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Um, I'm going to put together a, a fact sheet and sort of um, make some notes and have some links to um, different fact sheets about um, what we've spoken about today. 
Um, yep. And yeah, if you um, have any questions, you can get in touch with me um, through my website. But thanks, Mike, and I'll um, talk to you later. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Matthew, for talking to me. Okay, then. Bye-bye. Bye.